HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org, a nonprofit, member-supported radio station. We're millions strong, with folks tuning in from over 200 countries. We are education. We are entertainment. We are the future of food. May is our membership drive. Become a member and support us while receiving e-newsletters, advanced invites, special discounts, and a membership card. We need your support. Visit our website and click the donate button to become a member today. Thank you for believing in us and enjoy the show. to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kathy Irway. And uh, it is May, our membership drive, so check out heritageradionetwork.org. If you'd like to donate and become a member, you'll get lots of discounts. Um, it's a nonprofit organization, so you'll be helping us out a lot. Um, so check that out, and back to the show. Um, today's guest is the author of a book that kept me just salivating with the delicious food descriptions, um, a wonderful story about family and heritage, and it happens to be a novel, and I don't think I've ever had a novelist on this show um, talking about their work, and it, it, it's wonderful. It's the first novel by Jessica Sofer. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming, um, and congratulations. Thank you. The novel is called Tomorrow, Tomorrow There Will Be Apricots, and... Um, I, I read most of it, and I did read enough to know that that is a little saying um, that uh, the character's mother, I think, says that, um, you know, tomorrow there'll be apricots, uh, apricot flowers, I think, which means, like, you can always just put it off and maybe do it later. Yeah, it's an interesting phrase. It's um, it's an Arabic phrase, and depending on where you live in the Middle East, the phrase can mean a different thing. It's sort of regional. Oh. Um, but... It means, I mean, the direct translation is tomorrow when apricots will bloom, but right. 
it sort of means a number of things. It means that don't put off tomorrow what you can do today. Also, um, the apricot season is a very like short and fickle one. Sometimes there's no apricot oh. season at all. So it means, um, you know, tomorrow there might be there better might things. Be. Yeah. yeah, there might be. There might not be. It's as positive as it is negative, I think. I think I took that to mean you can always procrastinate. <laughs> it certainly okay, means that. Right, it does. It. Yeah. That's another. But it's also <laughs> hopeful. I mean, it's, it is a hopeful thing. Like tomorrow there might be this beautiful apricot season. Right. Apricot blossoms. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they're really strange looking, really, really gorgeous. That sounds awesome. Yeah, they're awesome. I don't know if I don't know what can be done with them, like if you can cook with them or or what, but um they're an interesting looking little doodad. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well, right now I'm getting like cherry blossom and peach blossom branches from the yeah. farmers market to put in a little vase yeah. and look really cool. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, that could also work. Yeah, I don't know if they have those at the farmers market, but apricots one day. Um, so this is a, just a, an evocative story about, um, I think the main character, I guess, would be a young woman living in New York City, Lorca. Yeah. And um, I noticed there's a real interesting, you know, throughout the first few chapters, there's an interesting duality of like pain and pleasure because she happens to be a pain addict and, and likes to sort of cut herself. Um, but also she's totally uh, obsessed with cooking and food and and she's a young girl in this, uh, you know, in the book, and she's making like croissants and like all these like elaborate French dishes at mm. home. Yeah, her. So her mom, um, her mom is a French chef at a at a fancy restaurant in New York City, and she's kind of learned everything. She's self taught entirely, and for the sole reason of trying to please her mother, who's this very kind of elusive, cold, workaholic, workaholic, yeah. just impossible to please person. And, and she's and the Lork- chef of a restaurant. She's so, the chef. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And Lorca's convinced that, um, if she can just cook well enough, cook the right things that her mom will see the benefit in having her around. And she's mm-hmm. fighting against, uh, the possibility of going to boarding school, which her mom threatens her with because she's been caught cutting herself in the school bathroom. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think what you say about that duality is exactly right. And I, Something that I, I very much wanted to say is that pain addicts aren't just... Addicted to pain. Addicted to pain yeah. and addicted to sadness. And it's it's actually sort of just the opposite. I mean, it's a way to release from the sadness and, like, inhabit one's own emotions to feel more, to feel to feel pleasure. It's so, that intensity. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It, it, right. It's, mm-hmm. it's an addiction like anything else. Um, but I think also, like, you know... Pleasure is an important factor in the book. I, I've been sort of surprised by some of the reviews. People find that it, the book is just entirely somber with no kind of redemptive qualities. And I, and that, you know, I'm, I'm sort of sorry that that's the takeaway. Like, I, I very much feel like food is a vehicle out of these characters' sadness mm-hmm. and their, their solitude. And oh, I was really touched by how, she, how much she was trying to cook for her mother or, or someone. And, and by that token, her mother was trying so hard to cook to please these you know, well-heeled guests at the restaurants right, too. Right. And so I, I, I could sort of relate to that. Yeah. And I, yeah. It's, I mean, it, I think in a way like writing, cooking is a way to ask the world very directly if they think that you're good enough. I mean, there's <laughs> a million other ways of court, uh, other reasons to write and reasons to cook. And I think, you know, reasons pe- to court. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> I thought that's what you were about to say. Um, um, there, yeah, there are a million reasons why people do what they do, but I think um, there's a sort of very explicit connection between, you know, getting um, affirmation from cooking yeah. and from writing, for sure. Uh, I thought it was touching. Um, it's so interesting, too, because um, the characters, 
uh, Lorca and her mother mm-hmm. are Iraqi Jews. No, Lorca, oh. Lorca and her Lorca. mother aren't Iraqi Jews. The, the Iraqi Jew is Victoria, who's Victoria. the novel's other narrator. Okay, yes. And you are an Iraqi Jew. I or am. your father. Yeah, my father was okay. an Iraqi Jew, yeah. Um, and we explore a lot of that food through Victoria, who teaches Lorca's teaching, uh, cooking classes right. later on in the novel um, that uh, becomes an interesting relationship in itself. But um, you mentioned that there's only about five Jews left in Baghdad? Yeah, that's the number. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that that's kind of, um, I, don't, I don't know if there's any truth to that. I don't know if there are any Iraqi Jews left. Right. But yeah, I mean, in the 19, late t- 1940s, there was a lot of instability um, after 1942, which is when um, Iraq got its independence. Um, Churchill and Hitler saw instability and saw oil. And so they took advantage of that. And there were a lot of Nazi sympathizers and there was just rampant anti-Semitism. And eventually there were quotas set up in the universities. And so first there was just kind of like hate. And then eventually there was a kind of more like specific way of, you know, ousting, outing the Jews. Um, And after some time, they were basically told that they had to leave and that they could leave. Um, they could be airlifted to Jerusalem or mm-hmm. to, to Israel. And um, between the years, I think it was like 1948 and 1951, 180,000 of the, uh, the 230,000 Jews left. Wow. Um, and most of them went to Israel. Um, and unlike your father, who ended up in Iran and right, then right. New York City. Yeah, he. Yeah, he. So sort that's of took, unique. It is. It is. Yeah. Um, he sort of took the road a little less traveled by, and that he did go to Iran, was in hiding for a year, and ended up at this um, at uh, a country club for diplomats. And he had this beautiful singing voice, and because of it, they <laughs> gave him papers saying he was from Bahrain, which allowed him to travel to the U.S. to wow. Ellis Island. Eventually, he ended up at Brooklyn College. So this was really difficult to... Victoria, you know, is also um, a character who sort of um, managed to find herself in America. Um, It must have been really difficult to track um, these immigrants because most of them went ended up in Israel. Yeah, there's a very um, strong, very political... Uh, group in Israel that the Iraqi Jews, there are BBC documentaries done on them, and um, they're a really strong population there, continue to be. But in the U.S., there are many, many fewer. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a good amount of them yeah. on Long Island, but of course they become fewer and fewer as the years go on. They die, die off. My, my aunt, my father's sister is, um, I think she's 88 or 89, and um, I mean, of course, her memories are what stick, but... Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Um... So with the food culture of these Iraqi Jews um, kind of disappearing, um, yeah. would you say that? I, I don't I mean would to sound say that so the only, No, it's absolutely not somber. And the only reason I hesitate, I mean, I, about a month ago, I would have said, yes, absolutely, it's disappearing. But then this weird thing happened mm-hmm. where there was this pop-up restaurant that, that popped up on the Lower East Side called the Kubi Project. And oh, wow. it was put on by this woman who's, um, she's Israeli, actually, and... She um, was very interested, I guess, in the Iraqi Jews. And um, Kobe is this kind of, uh, dump, it's like a dumpling stew dish. Oh. And my aunt made it my whole life growing up. And they're typically stuffed with lamb, meat, and mm-hmm. pine nuts, and cumin. And they're very fragrant. And in a, di- a number of kinds of broths. Um, my aunt's was typically tomato-based. Um, and so this Kobe project opened up, and they had they featured three different kinds of Kobe. And one of them was vegetarian, which was nice for me because I am a vegetarian. And growing up, I always had to, like, pull the lamb out of these dumplings. And so my only understanding of these dumplings was, like, 
half baked. Um, <laughs> and so I, I grew up eating the dough and the stew, but never the full thing. Oh, and okay. I always felt like somehow guilty or somehow like breaking from tradition in a way that felt inappropriate um, to cook, to try making them with mm, something else, to try yeah. them with vegetables. But because it was in a restaurant, I felt like it was okay. And so I, they were amazing. And the restaurant was amazing. We waited online forever in the pouring rain. And um, it was, I think, the third to last day before they closed. And apparently every day they had just been jam-packed full of people, which is unsurprising in New York. I don't even know how people found out about it, but I guess that's what happened. It sounds delicious. Maybe that's... Totally what? delicious. I mean, totally delicious, yeah. but... Um, wow, that's great. So were you partially inspired to write this book to sort of embrace this, uh, well, the culture and also the food cultures that in recipes that, yeah. that yeah, are being brought up? Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been talking a lot about like my Jewishness lately, which is something I'm not well versed in. In part, I haven't really thought about it. And I think you know, the thing is that I feel like I can access my only understanding of religion is through food. So like mm -hmm. my mom um, grew up in New Jersey and, and her parents were from their parents were from Russia. And so she grew up with like, you know, smoked salmon and knish and, mm. you know, Russ and daughters was like her understanding of things. Okay. And then my father, the Iraqi Jewish culture is very different. It's like this kind of long simmering foods, a lot of stews, yeah. um, this, these, really unique and beautiful notions of like eating to nourish one's body. Um, my father's mother was a healer. And I loved reading about yeah. that and the colors. Yeah. Like yellow color, will right? give you happiness. Yes. I mean, it's very, it's, it, it, it reminded me of Chinese superstitions with food. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, completely. Yeah. And I've, gotten really interested in Chinese medicine and see so much overlap. And mm -hmm. My whole life, my father just like had these kind of intuitive understandings of how a person should eat. Like right. if you were feeling sick, it was just like natural to eat ginger, which is warming oh, and yeah. like not to eat too much tofu in the winters because it's cooling. And mm -hmm. I don't, he never explicitly talked about those things, but now that I myself have found, you know, great comfort and learning and, and evidence, inspiration yeah. and evidence and all of it from that, I find myself sort of reverting back to the things that he did just naturally. And I wish I had asked him more about it. That is so cool. And thank you for sharing these like folksy wisdoms that <laughs> oh are, pleasure. you know, uh, yeah. sometimes forgotten about in a regular cookbook. Yeah. Um, you know, the stories behind the food and why. Right. Right. And all that stuff. Um, so with um, Iraqi Jewish food culture no longer really being present in Iraq, would you say that there's an interesting like diaspora or like maybe changes in the way that it's presented in America? Like, is there an Iraqi Jewish American food culture? Now, I wish that I knew. Culture? I mean, I, yeah. I don't know of one. I think that, you know, people obviously eat a lot of Iraqi Jewish food in their homes if they're Iraqi Jewish. When I was in London a couple of years ago, there were a lot of restaurants called Masgouf House or oh, Masgouf wow. whatever, which was shocking to me. And I would go inside and I want to get into Masgouf them. later. That's yeah, let's, for okay. sure. But, um, <laughs> Most of the people that owned the restaurants were Muslim, and so their understanding of eating was, was slightly different. But it is a very sort of folksy thing, and at this point, the Iraqi Jewish food has become sort of the stuff of legend, uh, huh. at least at least as, as far as I know. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's it's in fiction now in your book. <laughs> That's right. It will <laughs> but last But it's very forever. much real. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> very cool. All right. We're going to cut over to a quick little music interlude, and we'll be right back talking more with Jessica Sofer. This one's called All Them Things by the California Honey Drops on the Heritage Radio Network.org. You said we were through. 
Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. We support Heritage Radio Network because all you folks listening are so genuine, so dedicated to serious food, so much a part of what this country needs to strive to become. People like you are few and far between, and it's obvious to us at Fairway that we've got to stick together. Our desire is that the word gets out about Heritage Radio Network in its support for serious food, foodstuffs that offer memorability and, and timelessness, authenticity and, and rarefied quality. This country grew too fast to have established any degree of a heritage. Europe had centuries to develop. America has not. Heritage Radio Network serves to hasten the evolution of a society that often appears coarse and uninterested in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. Also, it is our membership drive at Heritage, so check out heritageradionetwork.org. You can get lots of discounts, like for an upcoming fundraiser party we're having in the backyard here at Roberta's on March, I'm sorry, May 19th. There's going to be a pig roast. I mean, how can you resist that? So I uh, hope you can su- support us. Um, back to Jessica Sofer, and there, tomorrow there will be apricots. Um like one of like the main dishes in um, this whole book, the dish that Lorca really tries to learn from her cooking mentor, Victoria, in order to please her mother is called masguf. Yeah, that's right. So masguf is a very traditional Iraqi Jewish um, fish dish. And it um, traditionally was made uh, from carp caught on in the Tigris and Euphrates in Iraq and literally like whisked out of the water by fishmongers and grilled right there on the banks with lemon and tamarind, sometimes tomatoes and um, sometimes with these pickles called tershi, various Ooh. kinds of pickled. So items. the tradition is that I read that here. You said it's like the tradition is that, you know, they whisk it right from the river, then cooked it for hours. And, you know, as people strolled about and drank and listened to music, um, and then, you know, this tradition is is really a bygone era. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is and it isn't, of course. Like, people have asked, you know, have I ever eaten masguf? And yes, I, you know, I've made it yeah. made it myself. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I live in an apartment in New York City. It's not Not cooked. by the Tigris. <laughs> I don't live by the Tigris or the Euphrates. <laughs> Recently, my street did flood, which made it seem <laughs> a little more similar. But, um, no, it, it can't ever be eaten in the same way that it w- once was. There were all the dead bodies in the rivers, and so a fatwa was declared on those fish, and in no way can it be replicated. So it's adapted, which, you know, is mm-hmm. something in and of itself. But I, I don't know how many... It's the national dish of Iraq, which is interesting because it's it's so much not what it once was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's connected to the tradition of how you, how you prepare it and how yeah. you typically enjoy it. Right. Is it... Is it um, Distinctively, an Iraq Jewish recipe, or uh, no? I don't think it is. Yeah, I don't. More, yeah, it's more universal. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, you have a lovely recipe that you provide for it, and uh, tell me a little bit about your recreations of it. Um, We've tried it a number of times, in part because um, 
the tradition was to cook it upright, so you would sort of stake it and cook yeah, it so it's in butterfly. the flames. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Butterflying it is key, so it gets equal um, cooking on all sides. Um, but it was literally staked vertically, and the flames would come up around it and cook sort of around it slowly, which you can imagine, like, like trying to do that on my fire your escape. barbecue, Not yeah. so good. So we've done it in the oven a number of times. I mean, essentially, all you need is a white flaky fish. Mm-hmm. Carp was what they used, but you can really use anything. I mean, probably stay away from farm raised, but <laughs> that just seems like a natural thing to do. Um, and then... You can really do it whatever way you want. You can roast it with the tomatoes um, mm. and whatever kind of spices you want. Turmeric is a is a traditional Iraqi spice. Cumin, all of that, um, and tamarind. If you can find tamarind, there's tamarind paste available. But I think we can find tamarind. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and then pickles, pickled mangoes, and yeah, pickled yum. mangoes are Lemon, delicious. Maybe. Yeah. Onions. Yeah, they do this nice thing with lemons where they cut them into rounds and then cure them with olive oil and salt. Oh, I can do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you can definitely <laughs> do that. That sounds delicious. <laughs> I want to try that at my, you know, backyard grill parties. Yeah, it's very fresh and clean. Yeah. It's delicious. Oh, yum. So um, you mentioned also that there's no Iraqi restaurants in New York City, which I was just... I. I you know, as a New Yorker, I'm like, no way. <laughs> but, um, right. you know, there used to be like one, but you didn't go there until it, before it closed. Right, exactly. And then there was a really nice piece done in the New York Times about it, how it was this kind of like mecca for um, Middle Easterners and diplomats. And they all used to gather Aww. there. And I am just appalled at myself. I wonder if I lived under a rock or what, but that I never went. Um yeah, it is surprising to me, too, actually. I don't know. I don't think it's anything political. But oh, oh, yeah. It's just... Yeah, I just think it's sort of the nature of things. Right. And so do you think it's, like, necessary or, like, the only possible way to explore different food traditions sometimes is through cooking and rolling up your sleeves? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's so much the way that we communicate our traditions and, and we communicate cross-culturally. Mm-hmm. I think so. Because I know a lot of people who are like, oh, well, I really want to embrace my roots. I'm going to go to Koreatown. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> right. And it's a very different experience than, than having to cook yourself and understanding ingredients. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've learned so much about the traditions of Iraqi Jewish food through the cooking of it. I mean, I, I've never been to an Iraqi Jewish restaurant except right. the Kobe Project, obviously. But, um, yeah, I've had to learn about the way that the way that they eat, the reasons that they eat, you know, a lot of it seems very obvious in a lot of ways, like eating brightly colored food to encourage happiness. You know, I don't know what they say, like the sweet potato is like Prozac. So, you know, Aww. all the vitamin C, it's, it's a good thing. Um, but I don't think I would have learned it had I just gone to a restaurant. Right. I don't think a waiter would have been like chattering Alan yeah, about Yeah, you would just that. see, you know, on the surface what you'd saw. Right, exactly. Um, it's, it's different. Yeah. So um, is there any other dish for you or certain food memories that um, you were able to glean from perhaps your dad and his yeah for sure I mean there are a lot of really amazing um, dishes I I love something called kitri which is this kind of like lentil rice cumin thing that sounds great it's great and vegetarian it's vegetarian Mm -hmm. it cannot be vegetarian too but um, it is typically vegetarian and some busak which are like feta and um, 
spinach turnovers. They're delicious cookies made with cardamom. Mm. Um, what else do I love? Something called uh, tershana, which is like butternut squash and apricots and nuts. Mm. It just simmered. It's like a pilaf or something. Or no, it's like, it's, a, like a, it's like a stew, but it can mm. be as stewy or unstewy as you want. Like you can put it over rice or you can have it be a little more globby and eat it like as a dish in and of itself. Oh my gosh. I know. Delish. Oh, wow. So, um, so this is your first book. It is my first book. Um, and congratulations. Thank you it's, very much. It's just, I, I was actually in suspense. Like I was like, this is quite a gripping tale you wrote because I don't want to give it away, but there's a, there's a little connection between characters that unfolds. I'm glad that you say that it's gripping. That's a, that's like a real compliment, especially for, um, a book that's kind of small. Like I mm-hmm. feel like the book is small in a lot of ways. Like it's not, you know, a thriller and it's not, doesn't seem particularly commercial to me so to hear that it's gripping is like hugely flattering um but i it, it i don't think it really started that way like it started much more kind of meanderingly and amorphously mm-hmm. and i think in a lot of ways i had to like imbue it with plot yeah it felt I important and, and really that was when the the hard work i mean obviously not obviously but a lot of it was hard but that was the hardest part for me was was restructuring it. And Got at it. a certain point when I started working with my editor, I basically had to make what happened on page 250 happen on page like 80. Mm. So the gripping, I, I think, was well, slapped on later yeah. <laughs> Well, I was, it was presented to me as a foodie kind of uh, novel, a delicious read, if you will. And I was expecting just sort of a meandering, you know, evocative, lovely tale about food and, and love and family and yeah so you did it <laughs> i'm glad yeah and i think i'm also like really concerned with books that aren't just traditionally foodie and that i think traditionally foodie means like seductive and lovely and um warming heartwarming yeah is this a genre or i i think that it has sort of become a genre like there are so many books like that and there are books that are also not like that and those Mm -hmm. are the ones that i really Love. I, I wrote a piece recently about three foodie books that won't make you hungry. Um, and I don't know if my book will or won't, but uh, Heartburn by Nora Ephron, which has mm. like a lot of really, I mean, she's hilarious and, and great and um, a lot of great recipes and things that make you hungry are in right. it. But they're also, it's sort of tempered with this notion that like every time there's a good recipe, it's tempered by sadness and like it's oh. undermined by this kind of horrific, embarrassing, only Nora <laughs> Ephron kind of moment. <laughs> Um, and then Amy Bender's the the particular sadness of lemon cake. I think also is like this. Well, that sounds like it. Oh yeah, it's great. It's so good and it's so sad. And but if it's a lemon cake and it's yellow, then it should be happy. And I'm flipping. Yeah, just the opposite. <laughs> but you'll have to read to okay. find out. It's a really good one. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's interesting as I see more in books like this um, that kind of uh, appeal to the the food lover, the cook, the mm-hmm. home cook. And for me, I. See, I I love exploring different cuisines through literature more so than restaurants. And, uh, you know, usually that's through a cookbook. Right. So this was a great, a great read because I don't know too much about Iraqi food. Yeah, there's there's a nice kind of like Jewish Muslim thing going on right now, too, which, um, you know, many years ago in Iraq, the the Christians and the Muslims and the Jews lived together like very happily. And then someone recently told me about this book, uh, cookbook called Jerusalem, which Mm. is absolutely beautiful and everyone should buy it. And it's written by a Jew and a Muslim. And it kind of feels like a throwback and also like an embrace of what the Middle East used to be like and really isn't very much anymore. Um, 
but it's such a gorgeous book and it has all these recipes that feel like they kind of touch on a lot of the recipes I know and understand, but they, Mm -hmm. they do it in a totally new way. Oh, wow. That sounds great. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like you're off to a real start writing in this genre. (laughs) I hope so. Yeah. I was thinking the other day, like, how am I going to in include food in my next book. I, I don't yeah. think I can leave it behind. Okay, yeah. good. That's what I was wondering. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, will it explore Lorca? Will we come back to the characters by any chance? I don't think so. No, not these guys. No, okay. I mean, as as of now, they're still, they feel like they they haven't quite gone to bed yet. They're still kind of fluttering around in my head. But I think, you know, once I feel ready to move on to the next book, I'll be ready to move on to something entirely different. Oh, wow. Yeah. Congrats. Yeah. That's great. I'm ready for something new. Excited for something new. Well, good luck to that. Thank you so much. And that's about all the time we have. But thank you so much, Jessica. So for, the book is tomorrow. There will be apricots, and it's just delightful. Um, and uh, donate to Heritage Radio Network by cu- becoming a member. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week. Whoa, the way you took it so Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.